All right, track down a Bible. Get with me in Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. And the Bibles that we have here, that some of you are struggling to get out of that narrow book rack, in the uh, Bibles that we have here, Psalm 90 is on page 511 and 512. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, the psalm, and then I'll pray, and we will get to work. Psalm 90, the heading reads like this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, then start into verse 1 reads like this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, and the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak. We're praying that you would help us to become wise people who recognize the brevity of life, the enduring qualities of eternity with you. So Lord, we pray that you would give us a healthy perspective today and that you would allow us to be satisfied with the work that you have performed for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Moses is the author of this psalm, as the heading indicates, and he's teaching us a lesson. The main lesson here is that life is brief. Life is brief and God is very permanent, but he explains that for us in verses 1 to 11. So there are two headings here. Verses 1 to 11 get at that idea that life is transient or temporary or brief, whereas God is permanent. That's the first part, verses 1 to 11. And then the second part has to do with the application of that truth. Here here are the implications. Here's the thing that I'm praying about in light of what I've learned about God. So that's where we're going headings here. Here's the first one. Life is transient in verses 1 to 11. So transient is a funny word. Um, Often it's used to talk about, I've heard it described of actual cities, like Chicago is a transient city, meaning you've got young people who go there uh, 
pursuing a career or whatever the case might be, and they spend a number of years there, but it's not a lengthy period of time. Maybe they get married and have kids and then move out to the suburbs or something like that. But if you're looking at the, the demographic, you could say urban cities in general are transient. They have people who come and go. So often we use it in that way. Um, I began to, to think about it when I was doing student ministry. And the reason why was because working with young people is a very transient experience. It's a part of the experience, right? They're in middle school, and then they transition into high school, and then later on they might get their license, and they go through all these big changes, and so they come and go. Um, so I was thinking about it this week, and I did um, five years of sports ministry, and then I was a youth pastor for nine years. So let's just look at those nine years. And I was thinking through, how many students did I have that started out in sixth grade and then went all the way through middle school, transitioned into the high school ministry, and remained with me for another four years? Because that would be best case scenario, right? If I'm doing ministry, best case scenario would be I would have a young person with me for seven years in total. So then this week I sat down and I began to think through with my faulty memory, so these numbers might be inaccurate, but I began to think through, okay, so nine years of doing this, I would have had three classes where somebody could have, you know, made that whole stretch. And I began to think through it, and I was like, I think it's less than five. I think it's less, out of the hundreds of students that I ministered to over all the years, there were probably less than five who started out in sixth grade, went with me through all of middle school ministry, all of high school ministry, and then, and then off to the next chapter of life. And so youth ministry is intrinsically transient. It just is. Kids are going through all kinds of different changes. And so I began to think about youth ministry in this way. This is the, the phrase that I really enjoyed using. It's like preaching to a parade. So you go sit down at a parade. You look over here. They're coming down the road. You go, hmm, I like this group. And you're watching them, and they're throwing candy at you. You're like, I really like these people. They keep going. And then you turn your head, and you're like, oh, a whole new group. Right? And that's what it's like to work with youth ministry because you've got your crew that's coming with you. You're like, oh, I like this. This is fun. And then, you, you know, you're like, okay, see you later. You turn and you're like, who are these jokers? Like it's a whole new batch. Um, and ordinarily, there was 100% turnover in middle school every three years and 100% turnover in high school every four years. So it's like preaching to a parade. It's a transient group. And so that began to inform, okay, I better do ministry so that this little snapshot that I have, this little opportunity that I have, we better capitalize on it. We better do everything that we can to prepare them for whatever comes next because life is moving quite fast. Well, Moses is making that point about all of human experience, and he's saying all of us are transient. All of us are moving along. All of us are here for a moment, and then we're gone. All of us are on the move. And he's, he's saying that to help us recognize the brevity of life and the transitoriness of the human experience, and he's like, it might even feel permanent in that moment, but the truth is, it is changing. So he puts it like this in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. It says, you've been our habitation. All the generations find their habitation in you, God. You've been our dwelling place. Now, it's interesting because he, what, he's, what he's getting at here, um, Derek Kidner in his commentary, he puts it like this. The concept of dwelling place especially relevant to this psalm's emphasis on human rootlessness. So Moses, think about him, the author of this psalm. He's probably writing this when he is living 
in the desert wilderness with a group of people who were formerly residents of Egypt. And now they live in you know, a pop-up arrangement where they set up tents and they set up all this different stuff and they're living on the move. And he's writing this and he's going, God, you are our habitation. You're, you are the place that we dwell. But not just us. He has solidarity with all people everywhere. He says every generation, all the generations have their habitation as you. So whether you're living in a, as a sojourner who's setting up a tent, you're living as a foreigner in a foreign land like Moses or Abraham or others, or whether you have built a city and you have a palace and you have a fortified wall around you, he says, all of us, every single generation has a temporariness to it. And all of us are here for a moment and then we're gone, regardless of how established it may feel. And that's the point that Paul makes in a sermon in the book of Acts where he says that God doesn't live in a place made by human invention. He doesn't dwell there. He's the maker of all things. And he, this is me paraphrasing from Acts 17, but he says, God has appointed people. He made everyone and everything, and God has assigned the the time and the place that they would live. And so Moses is saying, every generation, every person lives where God has placed them. We all live under the sovereign hand of God And all of us are transient. We are impermanent, whereas God is very much a permanent feature. Verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our lives are brief. It's fleeting. We're moving around. There's there's, uh, just a, a fragility to life. But you, God, you are very much so permanent. From everlasting to everlasting, you, God, endure. But we, one of the reasons why we are so frail and temporary is because we live under the curse of death. Every person dies. Every human being is destined for death. Who was it? Benjamin Franklin who said, there are two certain things in life, death and taxes. There are just some things that are certain. We're not talking about taxes here. Uh, Moses is is referring to this idea that all of us die. And so he says, verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. Remember, Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, and God breathed life-giving breath into him. And and here we're reminded, all of us, we're we're just kind of like dust balls, you know, floating around doing our thing. But there's a day coming where God will say, yeah, you're going back to that you know, messier form. You're just going back to the dust because you're mortal. You live under the curse of of death. So we have this brief time where we could be a functional death ball, which is our dust ball, I'm sorry, where we could do something useful with our lives. But we have to recognize that our lives are very, very brief and temporary and transient. So our time is brief, but God has all the time in the world. Look at verse four. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or a watch in the night, meaning God has a different vantage point on time. We look at our calendars, and we look at the things that we want to see happen as soon as possible. Uh, Actually, this morning, I had the guys group looking at a project that has been hanging over my head for over 12 months, you know, and I think, man, I want to get that one done. 12 months has gone by. We haven't finished this thing. Um, But when we think about God's timeline, we're reminded here, for him, a thousand years could be like the day that's just gone by. Or a thousand years could be like a, a night watch, four hours. For him, he views things differently. 
His timeline is different than our timeline, and we need to be mindful of that. God has all the time in the world. In the New Testament, Peter writing to a church, to churches, and, and they were kind of getting impatient with the promises of God. And he says, well, don't forget Psalm 90. Don't forget that for God, a day is like a thousand years, and, and a thousand years are like a day. So don't think that God is impatient like some of us understand impatience. And instead, recognize that God is being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he says, God has a different relationship to time than you and I do. And for him, a thousand years are no trouble. It's just like a day flying by. And we might be thinking, come on, let's get on with the promises coming true and all these wonderful things. But, but Peter says, you need to remember God and his relationship to time. And here are the two things you need to do. Number one, you need to live your life in holy reverence of this awesome God who's sovereign over time. That's what he says in his letter in 2 Peter. The other thing is, get to work. The, the fact that you have time gives you indication that God wants people to come to saving faith. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance and faith in Christ. So God has all the time in the world. That's what verse 4 is getting at. We, on the other hand, our lives are incredibly brief. Look at verses 5 and 6. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Writing from the ancient Near East in the desert wilderness, Moses would be familiar with these little things that would sprout up in the morning and look vibrant and healthy, and then the sun comes out and it just cooks. And he looks at that and he goes, that's my life. That's us. We, we spring up and we look vibrant and healthy, but the time that we have is incredibly short. We are like this, this new grass that has grown up, but by evening it is dry and withered. And so we have to recognize our time is short and death is certain. Now the question that, that we need to ask then is, why? Why is it that human life is so brief? Why is it that we die? Why is it that we experience this physical expiration of our bodies and the answer is given here in verses 7 to 11, and it's the theological answer. The answer is simply put, it, okay, first off, this is very easy to misunderstand and misapply. So permit me a few minutes to try to explain this. But the simple one-word answer for why human beings die is sin. Because of sin, we live under the curse of death. And Moses is going to spend some time here thinking about the the wrath of God against sin, and he's going to explain that. But before we go there, I just want you to think carefully about the beginning of the Bible. God made Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, gave Adam some very clear instructions. He said, you're free to eat from any tree in this garden, except do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Very clear instructions. But then a serpent shows up and begins to question the authenticity of God's word, and begins to question, did God really say that? And then goes a step further and says, you won't die. Surely you will not die. He flips it around. God says, you will surely die. And he says, surely you won't die. And so seeing that the fruit was desirable, they take of the fruit, and Eve eats from the fruit, which, by the way, this is a little sidebar on marriage. If you let your wife go first to see how bad it is, you're a bum. Um, but that's what Adam does. She goes first. She eats of the, the fruit. And he's like, well, it's, apparently it's not poisonous enough that she immediately died. And so he takes the fruit and eats it as well. Here's the, twi 
trick question, did they die? The answer is, yeah, they did. They didn't fall down dead, but they did die. And the Bible explains that in different ways, but in Revelation, it makes it incredibly clear. It says there's a second death. So apparently there's a first death. But, but those who are faithful to God will not be harmed by the second death. But all of us have experienced the first death. There's a spiritual death and a physical death. And even though they ate the fruit and they were still standing and still doing life and all these different things, they had spiritually been divorced from their maker. They had spiritually died in that moment. And so that curse of death is the common human experience. We live under the curse of what sin has done to humanity. And all of us die and we go to funerals and we say things like this, this is not how it should be. We, we lose people that we love and we in, instinctively recognize this isn't right. And, and we mourn the loss of those individuals because we recognize, like Ecclesiastes says, eternity has been set in the hearts of humanity. We know that we were made for more than a 70 or 80 year lifespan. We, we were made for so much more. And so we ask the question, why do people die? And the answer quite simply is sin. So Moses explains that for us here. And he says, verse 7, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. He says the re- one of the things that happens with humanity is we experience your righteous anger, God. And it's not God is grumpy, like he forgot to take a nap. And he just gets upset and just kind of retaliates against us. This is his settled disposition against sin. His righteous anger, his wrath against rebellion. And he said, Moses says, this is, the, the, this is what we live under. This curse of sin and death is what we face. We are consumed by it. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Even if I live a, a life that is apparently beautiful, you see what's really happening. Even the secret things in my heart that I can hide from an awful lot of other people, it's, it's before your searching gaze. You see everything inside of me. He says, our iniquities are before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. So contemplating the concept of death, he comes to the conclusion, God is holy. And I am a sinful person who is trying to relate to a holy God. And that's a problem. God has an all-searching knowledge of who I am. And then he says, verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. My life is before this holy God. It's all passing under the wrath that he has against sin and rebellion. And I finish the years of my life with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass, and we fly away. Looking again at life and just recognizing there is a limitation on how long I could live. And he gives us a couple categories, 70 years, 80 years. Some of you are 70. This, this should really bug you, right? You're in here and you're going, wait a minute. I'm very near to the end, um, according to the scriptures. But all of us recognize life is short. And, and even if we have a full life, even if we live 80 years, my, my wife's grandmother is 100 years. She had, we celebrated her 100-year birthday recently. Um, no matter how long you live, what this psalm 
forces us to deal with is our time is short. Our time is very short. It is brief. And even the best of our years are filled with trouble and sorrow. They quickly pass and we fly away. So here's the conclusion, verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. We, we need to come to grips with this holy God and his righteous anger against sin. If we did that, we'd be in a better situation. So first off, in verses 1 to 11, he says, life is transient. Life is brief. Death is coming. We better think about that. We better think very clearly about that. In fact, we ought to make our coming death a feature of our reflective lives, something that we consistently revisit. Now, this is weird because in our society, what I just said is the opposite of what you've been uh, discipled to do. You've been discipled to keep death at arm's length, that you don't think about it, insulate yourself from it, don't worry about it, you're going to live forever, enjoy your life, fill your life with all the stuff that you love. The Bible actually says, think about it. Reflect on this. Allow the, the reality of death to inform how you live, because that would be very, very significant. I found it this week. I'm not, I didn't have all the details, but I thought I'd share it with you. What I found was that in early America um, and Christian, I think it was homeschooling settings, what the children would do is they would write in their um, copybook, so if it was like homeschooling or whatever and they had to work on their handwriting, they would write in their copybooks. And, and what I found was that they would write this over and over again. Nothing is more certain than death. Take no delay in preparing for it. That's something they would write as like, hey, work on your handwriting. Write this down. Which sounds incredibly morbid and weird and maybe even traumatizing, but actually from the biblical perspective, it's helpful. Nothing's more certain than death. So do everything that you can to prepare for it. Take no delay in preparing for death. So um, we, we need to recapture those sorts of habits in the way that we organize our lives. We need to be willing to be like Moses and sit down and just kind of reflect on, my life is brief. My days are numbered. The amount of time that I have is limited. I better use that time well. One day God's going to return me to dust. So in the meantime, let me be a functional dust cloud doing the things that he wants. Secondly, we find here in verses 12 to 17, we find the application of this concept, and he turns it all into prayers. He says, here's what I'm praying for. Several different prayers here. The first one is, instruct us, God. Take us to school. Look at verse 12. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Hey, God, if that's true, if my life is incredibly brief, teach me this lesson. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to recognize that the time that I have is very, very limited. Let me work on the things that actually matter. Let me give myself to the stuff that is actually significant. Michael Wilcock in his commentary says, the numbering of days is not a lesson in elementary arithmetic, but in life-changing theology. To number your days is to learn to relate to God and with the realities of your life in a way that's actually truthful and helpful. Number our days so that we might be wise. This is the way of wisdom. It's the way of wisdom to recognize your limitations and God's eternality and to align those things, to recognize he's a holy God and I'm a sinful person and I've got this limited amount of space to do something with my life. Let, let me do that for your glory. St. Augustine put it like this, the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself a sinner. That is why this is the heart of wisdom. 
You're saying, I am a sinner who is under the curse of death. I've got a limited amount of time. Let me live for God's glory. That is wisdom. David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times, in 2015 he wrote an article, and in that article he compared resume virtues to eulogy virtues. Resume virtues being the things that we do that are our accomplishments, the things that we brag about to try to advance our career the things that we have performed that we can look at and say, okay, these are the things that I could contribute to a company or an organization versus eulogy virtues, which will be the things that people say about you on your deathbed, at your funeral. And Brooks was writing about the contrast between those two different things. And he put it like this. He says, our culture and our educational systems Spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than for the qualities you need to radiate the inner light of a beautiful character. So we are being discipled to try to advance our careers. That's what our culture does. That's what our educational system does. But he says, many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build an inner um, life of character. Oftentimes, we spend our time, our energy, our money on these resume virtues. And what Psalm 90 does is it's saying, wake up. Your life is short. Stop blowing all of your time and energy on that stuff. That's not ultimately going to matter. Spend your time and your energy on things that will be virtuous in your eulogy, the way that people will talk about you and the life that you've lived. Spend your time doing that. We need to be able to recognize that Psalm 90 is telling us, live your life very purposefully. Your life is short. Make choices that reflect your commitment to God and his ways. Learn to love people. Learn to be kind. Learn to be gracious. Learn to be a helpful individual. Well, his second request comes in verse 13. Tremper Longman puts it like this. While the first request was to live with wisdom, he now turns to God and urgently requests relief for his community suffering. Verse 13, he puts it like this. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servant. So he, initially he's saying, I'm not trying to change circumstances. I just want you to instruct me here. Teach me to number my days so I might be wise. The second request, however, is, God, will you please relent? Will you please turn aside your wrath against sin and return us to favor? Grant us compassion. He's praying along the lines of the character of God himself, the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he's saying, relent, Lord, and turn your compassion on your servant. He's recognizing the brevity of life, but he's making a very bold request. God, could you allow your character to show up in real time for us? Let us experience your goodness. Give us satisfaction, verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. It's saying, we are going through a very difficult situation, but God, fill us. Satisfy us with your unfailing love. Show us who you really are and what you can do for us. Don't let us walk out of church with our heads hung low, depressed, and like, man, what a bummer. Corey was talking about us dying today and, you know, the shortness of life and all these different things. No, he's saying, fill us. 
Fill us up so that we can be glad and we can sing. We can, we can lift our voices because God is a gracious and compassionate God. Satisfy us with your unfailing love that we might sing with joy and be glad all of our days and make us glad with a reciprocal value. We've went through hell on earth, but you can, you can give us favor and we can experience your blessing and your goodness. He's praying quite boldly for God's work in real time. And I love how um, one of the commentators pointed out that what he's praying for, to be satisfied with God, the New Testament outruns this because it, it makes it even more clear. Not just, hey, give us some good stuff so we could you know, be, be uh, relieved from all the difficulty. The New Testament tells us things like this in 2 Corinthians. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What we are going through and the brief life that we have and the difficulties because our days are filled with trouble and sorrows, what we are going through will be eclipsed because we will be experiencing an eternal glory that far outweighs all the difficulties we ever experience. So it's praying that God would help us to experience his goodness. And then he prays, verse 16 and 17, he's praying that we would experience the beauty of God and begin to live the beauty of God before others. Look at verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. Children, He's saying, let us see your handiwork, the work of your salvation. Let us see your deeds, God, and let our children admire the beauty of those things that you have done. Let us experience the, the, the work that you perform of bringing salvation to your people. Let, let us apprehend that. Let's see that. Let's observe your deeds. He's saying, let us experience that beauty of your work, Lord. And then, let us embody that beauty. Look at verse 17. May the favor of the Lord rest on us. May your goodness come to dwell and reside on us, your people. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So let you, let you come to reside on us, that favor resting on us so that we might get to work and show other people what you're like. Let us experience and embody your beauty, God. And that's what believers in him ought to be praying, that God would allow us to experience the, the beauty of his saving work and then be representatives of him to a watching world. So we go out and we get to work. In the New Testament, it puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You, you do work for God's sake. And that work is not in vain because God is allowing his favor to rest on you and now you are, the work of your hands is being established by God himself. Let us experience your beauty and embody your beauty to a watching world. Well, listen, Psalm 90, in some ways, anticipates the work of the Lord. Moses was praying from the Old Testament, looking forward to things that God was going to do. But we can look through the, the pages of Scripture, and we can find that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And Jesus came to undo the curse of death. Moses anticipated that my life is brief, and I'm living under the righteous wrath of God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of that wrath, to exhaust that wrath, and to defeat death. 
So Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he offered it up as a substitute. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we find that he defeated death itself. And he rose from the grave victorious to vindicate the work that he has performed. And now we're able to say, death has no threat for us. Yes, our lives will expire, our earthly experience will end in this fashion, but because of Christ and our faith in him, we will live forever with God. We can trust in his work. So though life is brief and brief and it's under the wrath of God, Jesus came to take away death. So now we can pray with Moses, but we understand the significance of what we're saying. We can be satisfied in God. And he can fill us with gladness and joy because of the work of Christ. We can behold the work that God has performed for us. We can see the work that he has done in Christ. And we can therefore experience the favor of God. The favor of God resting on us in Christ. And then, what do we do? We get to work. We're, we're these dust balls that are, you know, have an expiration date, and one day we're going to return to the dirt. But in the meantime, we say, we want to be functional, dust balls. We don't just want to make a mess out here. We want to glorify God. So help us do the work that you've called us to do. Let us live under your favor and establish the work of our hands so that more people might come to see and know you and your saving work, God, that you have performed in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that each and every one of us in here would recognize the brevity of the life that we have. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to number our days so that we might live very purposefully for your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would satisfy us with your loving kindness, that you would show us the work that you've performed in the sending of your Son to undo the curse of sin and death. We pray that every single one in here who is listening to me today or watching online later, that all of us would see that Jesus Christ is Savior and they would place their faith in him for salvation. Then, with the brief life that we have, could we please live it for your glory, God? Help us to do the work that you have established. We pray this in his name.